This week's episode of the Quintueras podcast is sponsored by Barcelo Rum. Today, Barcelo Rum is the Dominican Republic's number one exported rum brand and the number one exported dark rum brand in the world. It's sold in over 70 countries where it's recognized as the leading premium rum from the Dominican Republic. That said, it's no surprise. Barcelo actually sent your boy a couple bottles and I had the pleasure of tasting a few. And let me tell you, this ain't no cheap bottom shelf rum that you see at your local bar or restaurant. This is a premium quality stuff. Twice chosen the best rum in the world by the Beverage Tasting Institute. I pulled out my fancy glass, dropped in a thick ice cube, and a little bit of that Barcelo. Let me tell you, y'all, that joint was smooth and delicious. I highly recommend it. I, we celebrated every single success, no matter how small, that's because big. I knew that I had to keep morale up. And that's like in war, you got to keep the, the, the morale of the troops. So if we did an album that that's that nobody, we didn't think anybody was going to buy, but the completion of that album, I made plaques for the whole crew. And we had an album release party. Maybe nobody gave a damn about our album, but us. But you couldn't tell us, man. People came and just the energy of us being so happy and giving plaques. You're like, we're not going platinum. I'm giving a <laughs> plaque for completion. But for kids coming from from the from Miami, just trying to do hip hop at the time was unheard of. So to complete an album, a studio album, and put it out and get distribution and all that shit, that was huge for us. And, I, and that's what I continue to always do consistently. I would celebrate the small wins. <laughs> Dímelo mi gente, what's up? Welcome to another episode of the Quien Dueras podcast brought to you by Plural. On the Quien Dueras podcast, our mission is to redefine professionalism. And we do that by having a new guest every week explore the conflict that they have faced between professionalism and authenticity. Speaking of guests, the clip that you heard in the intro of this week's episode is with a very special guest, DJ EFN. These days, EFN is most known for the Drink Champs podcast where he is the co-creator, executive producer, and host. Alongside this Miami hip-hop pioneer, he's also joined by legendary Queens rapper and one half of Capone Noriega, Nori. Nori and DJ EFN and special guests talk over some drinks and discuss everything from current events to old school stories. They say that they're the most unprofessional, professional podcast, and nothing is sacred when talking with a drink champ, so the show is not for the easily offended. My favorite part about the show is how much they celebrate themselves and their guests. It's personal to me because I struggle with celebrating. My anxiety doesn't often let me do it. I always share the example of winning the lotto. If I win the lotto today, in my head I'm thinking, well, how can I spend it? How can I do this again? What about taxes? Like a thousand questions are running through my brain instead of just taking a second to celebrate. Why don't I treat myself to a dinner? Why don't I pop some wine, pop a bottle, go for a walk, like literally do anything. It doesn't have to be this crazy extravagant party, right? That, but that celebration is what's going to keep the morale up and continue to push me to want to get that next win. But if we don't stop to smell the roses, give each other our flowers and celebrate our success, then what are we even doing it for? Another thing that I love about the podcast is the representation that they're both creating, is the representation that's being created for media and interviewers. You'll hear on the episode EFN casually dismiss and humbly decline the idea that he's an interviewer. But in my mind, when I think of interviewers, I think of Larry King and Jay Leno and all these late night TV hosts. 
that don't look dressed or speak like me. But when seeing EFN interview some of my favorite musicians, artists, and entertainers, I look up to them. I think, well, maybe I can do that if he's doing it. Anyway, enough of the love fest I got for EFN and what he's doing for the game and the culture. Let's get into this dope conversation. And we start off with EFN walking us through what does the word authenticity mean to him? Authenticity to me means being an individual, not even a, being a part of a, other groups or even if it's like my own my own cultural background, like it's being authentic to who I am, how I grew up, how I was raised, the environment that I'm from, the things that I've experienced, being myself. That to me is what authenticity is. And what I think has been blurred is that people feel that if you don't act a certain way that they expect almost like it's almost like maybe you could call it reverse stereotyping, but they, they're like, Oh, you're trying to be this. or You're not trying to be that. And it's like, that's where they try to apply authenticity where it's, it's either happening or not happening. You're not being authentic or you are. And I don't think that's fair. I think only the person themselves will know the true answer if they're being authentic. I think a word you mentioned that was really interesting is the expectation or like the shoulds. Like, what do you think some of the expectations were on you growing up? I mean, dude, is it my upbringing was so wild and crazy and not 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 on some wild and crazy like street shit, even though it, it has that element in it. But just like I was born in, in Los Angeles, California. Mm -hmm. uh, my parents are Cuban, my whole family, you know, Cuban. And I'm, I'm born in L.A. where it's majority Mexicans Yeah. in the neighborhoods that, that I'm in, that I'm growing up in at that time. Uh, without making a long story, I ended up uh, coming to Miami at a young age. And I, and I moved back and forth quite a bit. And it was such a culture shock for me as a kid. One, because I'm being yanked away from what I knew in, in LA. And even though I'm growing up around a lot of Mexicans, I don't know, if, you know, I don't know your background, but Cubans. And then I, th I think anybody that's really into their culture, like the families, you will grow up and you will think you're on that island or in that country because it's just <laughs> infused in everyday life you know like I, you couldn't tell me that i wasn't in cuba uh, you know living in growing up around my grandparents and my aunts and my uncles so there was a lot of that in there but it had that la flavor and that la style to it and just the things i was exposed to when i came here it was just a culture shock man and 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 and, and i moved back and forth as a young kid and then you know my dad's a vietnam vet and, and i kind of saw things through a lot of his eyes he had a lot of issues um, being Latino and, and, and you know, and, and being in the Marines and going to Vietnam and just just all these different dynamics. And then like, you know, I'm on the West Coast and I'm in the South and I'm in South Florida. And it's like the Southern thing, which was new to me at the time. And like the different racial dynamics that were going on here. And, the, the, you know, the just it was just all of that stuff was like it made me who I am today because it was just so many weird things going on at the time, you know? And, and then I come to Miami in the eighties, the height of the cocaine cowboy era. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that happened that I thought were normal as a kid that when I end up watching these documentaries, mind you that these are friends of mine now making these documentaries. And these documentaries are about my neighborhood where, you know, I thought I just lived in the suburb of Miami, which I knew what I went through was a little extraordinary, but now these documentaries explain what I was, what we were, dealing with at the time so so all that stuff made me who i am today it's just a lot of different things that were happening yeah you know i think about that all the time because so my family's from dominican republic 
I know you got a ton of Dominican friends and oh, people that you Dominican work with. Friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're like by default, like half half Dominican. Yeah, yeah. All the Diablo, me, that's all my friends. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's funny though, because people are like, yo, would you ever move to LA? And I was because they were like, oh, there's big Hispanic population. What people don't realize is that there's a spectrum to being Latino. So you probably saw those differences in your household, like heavy Cuban, but outside you probably had to like find that community. Well, the interesting thing about what the Cubans did in, in, and this is not just in LA, because I had family that was in New Jersey as well, is that they created these social clubs mm-hmm. and to connect and network all the different Cuban families to, to whether it be giving them jobs or for the kids to me, maybe they want to intermarry, you know, keep the Cuban bloodline going. I don't know what, <laughs> but you know, like the, the, the old people would be there playing dominoes. They had a bar. They would have uh, beauty pageants for the girls. You know, they have daycare for the kids. They would have all kinds of parties. And so it was like that I was in this immersed in this Cuban world. And only when I played outside in the neighborhood did I come across other than Cubans, you know? And then I was like intrigued and not understanding. And people would, you know, Mexican kids would be like, you ain't fucking Mexican. Like, you know, I catch beef and they would be like, what's going on here? Like, you know, we're all speaking Spanish. So I, I, I didn't really get it. And so, you know, I got a little older and shit. And tell me about like when you, when you got to Miami though, what was that like? Coming here, you know, it was just such such a mess because I moved so much back and forth. Like I mentioned, my dad, he, he you know, he was a war vet that had PTSD. He had drugs and alcohol problems. He was doing his stuff that he was doing. And then my parents eventually got divorced and we just stayed here. And at first it was really, really rough on me because I just felt like this wasn't my home. I don't give a damn how many Cubans was here. Like this wasn't my home. I didn't feel at home in Miami. LA was my home. LA is what I knew. I felt good in LA. And so it took me a while to, to really feel comfortable and feel at home here. And then what it was is that once I'm going to like junior high, which is middle school and then high school, I'm starting to, you know, create this group of friends. And what, what was dope about the area that I live in is very multicultural, mostly Caribbean though. So like my best friend was from Barbados, you know, we have Jamaican friends, Haitians, Colombians and you know Puerto Ricans everything and so that mix of people starts to you know introduce me to all kinds of different cultures and backgrounds and and you know and and I think it opened me up in a way that I wouldn't have opened up in LA and it made me better in a sense I feel because in LA you're still kind of in a in in like a like a pocket like where it's like you could stay yeah we had the Cuban element of our family but we're in this like Mexican bubble as well if you stay in the hood you know if you stay in the neighborhood we're some we lived in Southgate where Cypress Hill and those guys are from. Yeah. And, and they're Cuban as well. Like their send dog is Cuban and be real is half Cuban. At that point, like in high school, did you even have an idea around like what you wanted to do in the future? Junior high, going into high school, I was really into paintball. Okay. Like heavy. I was a skater, which I felt was like, like part of that element came with me from LA. Like yeah, that surfer skater stuff in LA. It didn't matter if you were from the hood, not from the hood. Like that's, that's just like, you know, it was, a, it was a thing. It was a part of the LA culture. Mm. And I brought, I kind of was, you know, was with that. So I was a skater, terrible skater though, but I was into the culture. <laughs> I still love skating. Do you do it these days? No, 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 no. I mean, I still got <laughs> boards and stuff and, and, and I'll collect the board that, that I, you know, wanted back in the days. But uh, and my favorite skater is Latino, Mark Gonzalez, one of the illest mm. first street skaters that really popped. But then I got into paintball, which was super dope and necessary in my life at the time. Cause I was, Young kid, I had a lot of rage in me, my, my issues with my pops. He wasn't around. 
being raised by a single mom, I'm a latchkey kid, you know, my mom's working late, I just go home and, you know, you kind of feel alone and you, it's just, you know, just dealing with a lot of rage inside of me. And so I started getting into fucked up shit. Like I was doing a lot of foul shit. And what paintball allowed me to do is it was an outlet to let this rage out because, you know, in paintball, you're shooting guns and you're basically killing someone without killing them, you know? So you let out this fumes that, that you wouldn't let, let out otherwise, unless you was busting for real. Yeah. So, but what it also taught me is I, I got a gauge of like being creative and learning leadership because I didn't have the money to play paintball. It's a very expensive sport. You know, my mom didn't have the money to give me for, for that. And so yeah. when I played the first couple of times, I went to this field, I noticed there was a team that worked in this one field. It was these young guys and they were cool. They had all the fucking gear. They would talk shit. The field used their team to play like the people who came on to pay if they didn't have enough people. These guys were fucking us up. But I noticed them and I'm like, man, these motherfuckers look cool as fuck, man. Like, I wonder if, if another field opens, if I could step to them, maybe I can do something like this, create their team for them and the team could work and maybe it'll give me a discount or whatever. A field opened up. I stepped to them. They happened to be some Cubans. And I was like, yo, I would like to, to help build a, a team for your, for your field. And we could work. We would work as referees. We could, we could help clean, build, like whatever. We worked the, the, the field. And then in exchange, you know, I got a discount on paintballs. I never had to pay for, you know, to attend the, you know, to play there. And, and, and then through that, I went to tournaments and I almost went pro. What? Like long story short. Yeah. I almost went pro playing paintball. And at that time there was like million dollar cups uh, for like the adult teams. We were a junior team at the time, but I got asked to join one of the top pro teams in the country which was called the Terminators. Top, top team in the world, actually. That's crazy. And Do a lot of people now, know this? Nah, not that many people know. I came out in magazines and everything. I got the magazines and all that shit. Yo, um, what? Yeah, so, so, you know, at that same time, though, I mean, this whole time I'm, I'm into music and I'm, I'm into hip-hop and I'm a, I'm a hip-hop head. And now high school, like, this is junior high going into high school. So now I'm in high school and, you know, regular teenage shit, like girls and get into fights and bullshit and crews and gang shit going on and, and you know, just the music. Like, I was really into the music. And so the paintball thing, I kind of started to like, not leave it alone, but it just, it didn't fit into this, you know, my daily world that I was in at this time. And so once I got invited to join that team, I kind of like felt like I had reached the pinnacle. Mm -hmm. uh, it's time, to, I'm gonna let this go now. Sometimes I wish I would have kept going because it was just so dope. And I really did love playing paintball, but I let it go. And this is like, I'm in like my junior, no, nah, maybe my sophomore year of high school. And then now I'm just like, got into music and started becoming like found a, a crew of friends in, in high school that were again multicultural from different areas of the country had friends from from the west coast friends from new jersey new york uh atlanta like and then miami heads and then we all our common thing was we were we were just hip-hop heads mm -hmm. and that was that was what we started to do we just were like going to all like the local events and local things and it was ending of that school year that i decided what I wanted to do is somehow be involved in the, in, in, in the music industry, but specifically the hip hop, you know? Did you have certain conversations with like your mom, for example, around like, yo, mom, I'm in a professional paintballer. No, I don't. I mean, I, I don't think we had that, those kind of conversations, but I think for my mom, I think she was just happy that I, I, I was getting out of the house and I was doing something else other than being out in the streets. Cause she would be working all yeah. day and I'd be out and yeah. I'm telling you, man, I was getting into some shit and, there was a lot of problems in and around the neighborhood and not to say that I lived in a terrible neighborhood, but it's just kids being kids. And, and like I told you, now looking back, like the eighties, it was wild out here. And yeah. so 
I could have very easily gone down a very, very dark road had it not been for paintball getting me out of the house and, and, and letting out those frustrations and, the, and that energy, you yeah. know, like, cause I was a kid that because my dad was a veteran and, and all of that. And because we weren't connected a lot, I used, I was into war. Like I still love, I like, I love the history of war. So I would watch all the war movies and I was like really into that shit. And in my mind, you couldn't tell me that I wasn't, I hadn't gone to war. Like I was just very connected to my dad through these like war movies and this idea that I was going to join the Marines as well. Like I, I tried to get my mom to sign off for me to go to Desert Storm when it happened. I was like 17 and I think I needed wow. to be 18. And she was like, nah, you know, she talked to me and I was like, all right, you know, don't worry about it. But yeah, I, she didn't really talk to me, but I think she just felt that I was, you know, she felt better about me doing that versus anything else. Yeah. Because she couldn't keep an eye on me. At least I was out with some, more or less, there was like some adults hanging around us to an extent. Yeah. But even though if there wasn't, I was doing something very specific that didn't have me out in the street just doing whatever the fuck I wanted. Yeah. And it was that, exercise yeah. on top of that, too, you know, like yeah. running around and doing all kinds of shit. You probably looking fit as fuck back in the day doing paintball. I mean, I was still probably the fatter kid out of it, but now looking back, I'm like, I was skinny as fuck. For a fact, you, know, you motherfuckers were skinny as shit. <laughs> Yo, but I think I think what you said about representation is so interesting, though, right? Because there's this... Um, there's this idea around like, you know, we can only be what we can see, right? And then you seeing your father in this, like in the army or in in, in battle and in, in in war, the like in the you Marines. Got, you gotta tell Marines the one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My bad. You seeing your dad in the Marines, like you yeah. even wanted to be that, right? Just because right. of like proximity to like what you were around. I'm sure people look at you now as, as a Latino that is so accomplished in the music industry. Um, and entertainment, they're looking at you now as the representation to be like, yo, right. he offended it. I could do it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's the same because, you know, I think the thing with my dad was more of a the emotional connection and and, mm. and the father-son thing. But what I will tell you is that, you know, being so into war and military and all that, that did help shape some of my strategies on how to, you know, try to be successful. Like, you know, I didn't have any mentors. So, you know, discipline, so whatever discipline I had, which I didn't have much, you know, I was trying to think of myself like, okay, what would I do in this situation if I was a Marine or if I was in war? Like whenever I came, when I had some issues in the streets or whatever, or something got bad or I was scared about something going on, I would put myself in the mentality, I, you know, well, if I was in the trenches in Vietnam, like there's no going anywhere. You got to deal with it. So I would always put myself in those, those mentalities. Later on though, my dad, to his credit, and even though we'd never had a good relationship, he was an entrepreneur that he would like, he would do all kinds of shit, build businesses, but then he'd like fall apart, but then build it back up. Like he'd go broke, then become a millionaire, go broke. Like he was out there like hustling, hustling. And, and I looked at that and it was kind of an example of like, okay, yeah. like it is possible, you know, especially seeing him fail, like build something and then fail at it and then go come back and bounce back and build something else again. Um, so he, in that sense, he was an example. And also me taking the military stuff, because of him and using that in different ways, you know? So you always knew based on that, you were like, I'm going to work for myself. I didn't know, but I guess I got that spirit from him. But I also, you know, I, I was nervous because I seen him go through so much shit. Like my dad is also the tale of what not to do and, 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 and something that haunts me as well. When it comes to being a parent, I worry, you know, I want to be like my pops when it comes to, to, to abuse of drugs and alcohol. I worry about it because of my pops. Um, my rage, I worry about it because of my, like, there's a lot of things that haunt me because of him as well, you know? 
dude, I would never think that you had like a rage side of you. Obviously, I don't know you. This is just like the outsider's perspective. Right. But you seem like a such a calm Zen dude that has been through. But now that I'm talking to you, I'm like, there's got to be work on the back end, therapy, mental health, all of those things that's gotten you to where you are now, though. Well, look at the name of my company. It's Crazy Hood Productions. Mm -hmm. That crazy, it has to deal. I mean, I didn't say to myself mental health, but it was yeah. about mental health when I thought of that. And hood was not neighborhood. It was we would call ourselves hoods, mm. you know, hoodlums. So we were crazy hoods. And then my slogan for my company and my IG handles, who's crazy? And it's rhetorical. Yeah. I am. So it's always been there. And yeah, there was a, there's a point where I realized, you know, and this is going into the industry. We, you know, years already of working in it and, and battling through things that I, I realized I'm either going to succumb to the rage or I'm going to control it and, and not let it control me. And that's what I've decided, you know, actively do. But it's work. You got to you got to work on it. That's no, that's really interesting. Talk to me about like when you did go into the music industry, there you are, you see your dad launching all these businesses, but also failing in that roller coaster of emotions. Right. But now here you are going into this world. Did you have any imposter syndrome going into it thinking, can I really do this? Can I be successful here? Hip hop in the 90s, early 90s, even late 80s, I would say more early 90s is more influential to me. There was a lot of Latinos doing it. Now, we weren't reaching certain levels, but in terms of like rappers and producers and people behind the scenes, tons of Latinos were in there. And there was people that you knew were Latino that they themselves weren't saying they were Latino. You know, they just wouldn't speak Spanish. It might be a black dude, you know, he's Latino, but he didn't want to speak Spanish. He didn't want to put that side of him out there. Tons of artists. So I wasn't, you know, there was examples out there, but for me, it was, it was more than that in terms of like the hurdles, you know, I'm coming from a suburb in Miami. Um, a Cuban kid at the time, maybe the Latinos were more Puerto Ricans and maybe Dominicans and Colombians, maybe because it was mostly cats in New York or Mexican on the West Coast. Miami wasn't a big hip hop city in terms of the industry influence. So and I was really young. I'm, I came out the gate trying to do this seriously, you know, 18. And so I didn't have no mentors, no, no big connections, no network, nothing. So it was an uphill battle to, to fight. And and you would, you know, I would definitely come up against a lot of uh, resistance to it. And even in Miami, there was, there was internal fights. Like in any city, there's internal fights between people and who's going to do what for the city. Um, but I just stuck to my guns. I tried to build out strategies. And honestly, all of this has to do with my crew of friends. Like my crew of friends that, that, that were behind me and, and were like, uh, we're going to go on this journey with you. We were just... We were so into the culture and so into hip hop and so into the mission statement of putting on for our city that with them around me, like, that's all I needed. And, you know, and they were willing to execute my strategies and my plans to the T. And, and we, we looked like, and I, this is the military mindset. I, I added very, you know, military discipline and military attitudes to how we would operate because it was like 10 of us. Mm. And in numbers, there was something, you know, so. So that that's what really helped keep us on track. But it, I mean, it took it took many years for things to, to really pan out and and not everybody survived those years. But my crew in, in terms of the crew itself as a family of friends is still intact today. Same fucking people. And, you know, and we had small successes. And the difference also that I did uh, in and around my crew is I, we celebrated every single success, no matter how small, that's because great. I knew that I had to keep morale up. And that's like in war. You got to keep the, the, the morale of the troops. So if we did an album 
that that's that nobody we didn't think anybody was gonna buy but the completion of that album i made plaques for the whole crew and we had an album release party maybe nobody gave a damn about our album but us but you couldn't tell us man people came and just the energy of us being so happy and giving plaques you're like we're not going platinum i'm giving a <laughs> plaque for completion but for kids coming from from the from miami just trying to do hip-hop at the time was unheard of so to complete an album, a studio album, and put it out and get distribution and all that shit, that was huge for us. And, I, and that's what I continue to always do consistently. I would celebrate the small wins. And that's what kept things moving forward. That reminds me of a conversation I had with my therapist. She was like, rarely do we ever compare down. We always compare up, right? So if you put out an album, maybe people in your crew are like, yo, but we didn't go triple platinum, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, we got to remember, you know how many people would kill to be in your spot right now? Absolutely. To simply just put out an album. So I love the fact that you celebrate those wins because those wins aren't always going to be there. Maybe. No, maybe. I thought the first album we did, the group was called The Alliance, The All. And, and the name of the album was Who's Crazy. <laughs> I thought that first album could potentially be the last thing we ever do. But it was such a feat to get it done at that time, to be able to get into the studio Bro, we're broke kids, man. Yeah. We're being creative. We're, we're being very creative on how we're going to record this album. One of the things that I did, sidebar, is I told my whole crew, go to the local community college. Everybody sign up for studio classes and, and all those free hours in the studios, how we're going to record most of this album. Wow. Whether or not you want to be an engineer or not, everybody here sign up for studio classes. And that's how we were able to, 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 to kind of cheaply fund the, the, the recording part of it. And so, yeah, man, once we did it, and like I said, we celebrated, imagine the, 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 the haters that were in the audience seeing us going crazy over our place. Like, motherfucker, you haven't sell anything yet. <laughs> <laughs> and I got pictures of that day. You couldn't smiles from here to here because in our heads, we made it, you know? That's fire. Um, I'm wondering too, like, what was it about hip hop for you that you were just like, yo, this, I'm in love. I, I loved all kinds of music, all genres of music growing up. I was really, because of the rage part, like metal and punk, when I was a skater, thrash music, like that shit spoke to me. Like I, that, that rage part of me loved that kind of music, but I liked all kinds of music. And so slowly rap music is infiltrating my playlists, my radio, my boom box. Not yet do I understand that this is a greater culture called hip hop. You know, I'm just a kid listening to whatever's coming in. But I will tell you what was the game changer for me. When NWA came out, that was a game changer because I felt the same rage, but I had never thought that hip hop, that rappers could convey that emotion the way that they did. You know, that anger, that, 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 that everything, just all those, that energy. I had never heard it that way in rap music like I had heard it in this other music. And to be quite honest with you, the other music, although it worked for me with, in terms of like, identifying with the rage those people didn't look like me those people didn't really feel at all like me at all i could appreciate the music but those weren't my people that wasn't my tribe and yeah it's easy to say well nwa is not necessarily your tribe but at the scope of looking at everybody in the culture at the time the b-boys the graffiti artists everybody this music spoke to me this this music resonated with me and when i realized that i was already doing graffiti i was already a b-boy you know what i'm saying then and then that that another skater actually told me hip hop and I was like hip hop like he's like yeah man we do hip hop and I'm like hip hop like rap music no hip hop <laughs> and I realized holy shit this is fucking amazing this is an entire culture that's what took me over the top man and and from that point on and it was NWA and Public Enemy those two things 
those two groups that really like like really got my passion into into the music and the culture and i never stopped after that that's dope man i mean i wasn't i'm i was born 1990 i think it was like 89 that that album dropped maybe yeah. exactly so de- definitely too young to to appreciate right. what was going on but but it's funny because my mom at that time they had just started doing the parental advisories on the albums and i had to get her to buy yeah uh she had to buy the nwa straight out of compton and, and i had her to buy the two live crew first album <laughs> which the people at the store were looking at her crazy and she bought them and she she when she heard it she's like oh my god but this is another thing too that that the music was doing for me is that it kind of was my surrogate father in a weird way. Cause my mom, you know, she's here working, uh, you know, she, over time, she's not around as much, you know, and she, she's, she's a woman trying to raise a young son, a man, you know, and, and she only has, but so many tools to, to, to raise me and so much of a cultural and, and experience of a background, like to understand what I might be dealing with. You know, she came from Cuba, she came when she was a teenager. She went to L.A. She was around friends and family. She wasn't exposed to too many things. I mean, other than I'm not going to downplay what she was exposed to in the revolution with tanks going through her neighborhood. But I'm talking about like the shit I was going through as a kid in, in the streets. So this music was was informing me and explaining to me and, and, and helping me navigate what I was dealing with every single day. Now, what I try to tell people is like, oh, so, you know, if a, if a rapper says, do this, you're going to do it. No. I mean, to me, that's when good parenting and, and love in the home kind of like try to like balance you out because, you know, my, my mom was overwhelmingly loving to me. So, and she tried to teach me as well as she could. So I knew the things that I I could take from it and the things that I would just let leave as entertainment or leave it in the music, but it was helping me. It was helping me build me for good or for bad. It was helping build that side of me that I wasn't getting from my dad. Because my mom would be like, go to the principal. If someone, you know, you got a problem, go to the principal and cry to them. You know, I didn't have the dude tell me, nah, you got to stand up for yourself. And so the music was partially helping me in that, balance that out. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think about like a, the Cameron interview. I don't know if you remember this, but he was on the Bill O'Reilly show and they, they were asking him something similar. They were like, yo, why do you talk about all this violence and all this gang culture, whatever the hell you're talking about in your rap music? Like you're, you're going to be influencing the kids in a bad way. And he was like, you know, very smart, too, when he said this, he was like, well, what's the difference between me talking about it and a reporter on the news talking about it? Absolutely. I'm just talking about it with a beat behind it and, like, making it rhyme and sound cool, like, with swag, but it's no difference than an anchor on, on like, NBC or ABC talk, telling a story about my same community. At least I'm talking about it, like, from a authentic perspective because I lived it. This is, like, this is my truth. I'm just reporting what's happening. So, right. in many ways, like, hip-hop music is like educational to the stories that a lot of people aren't telling they're not putting eyes on it you know what i mean absolutely yep absolutely yeah and i think the powerful thing about storytelling is that right now you are in the position of not only telling people stories but celebrating those stories and amplifying stories that often go untold like one thing i really love about drink champs and, and shout out to you and all the success that, that you've had on it is that you know i think we often wait for people to pass away or for something tragic to happen to celebrate them and to share those stories i love the fact that like you're you're sharing those stories and giving people a voice today yeah we definitely try to man now you are an interviewer when you started djing sure there was there was people that looked like you potentially quote unquote professional interviewers 
I think about Larry King, I think of Conan O'Brien, I think about like all these late night TV shows. What was it like for you going in this new professional realm? It was never the idea or never did we think it was going to blow up the way it blew up. That was never a thought. And even for me more so because my whole kind of like idea of what I do was always in the background. A DJ plays the back row, managers play the back row, marketing, promotions, you know, you're doing the back end stuff. So I was never that interested in being the, the, the face of something. Yeah. But I started to realize that, you know, and this was years before even like a couple of years before Drink Champs that I had to put myself out there a little bit more. I had to lock in my my spot and solidify like what I've, you know, my investment basically. Yeah. Because when you're not seen, a lot of people just don't even know that you're involved and then they disregard your role in it. And so me and Nori had had done another show before that um, on Sirius XM. And, you know, we really enjoyed doing it. So I, I was already doing it. I had done pirate radio for a long time. I did college radio, mm-hmm. you know, my mixtapes, you know, I would talk crap on my mixtapes. So <laughs> I, had, I had been used to doing it. But again, like my whole thing, it wasn't like, oh, we're going to do this podcast. It's going to fucking blow up. It's going to be one of the biggest podcasts in music. Like that was never an idea. It was like, let's do this podcast for fun as a little side hustle that maybe pulls in a couple dollars every month aside from everything else we're doing right out the gate it blew up to where it took over our lives (laughs) (laughs) and so and so here we are and again and i again i don't like to call myself a journalist i don't even like to call myself necessarily an interviewer yeah yeah. you know if anything i'll give that more on nori but i think what we're trying to do is just have really authentic the word authentic organic conversations with people and we were trying to just replicate what we were doing behind the scenes backstage at the barbershop um, in the studio where you're hanging out with people, you know, in these in these places and you're having some drinks or you're smoking or whatever, and you're talking shop and you're shooting the shit and it's unfiltered. Yeah. That's what we're trying to duplicate and give that to the audience where we felt they hadn't had that. Going back to that representation, yo, that shit is so important, right? Because you also have other shows where you're in front of the camera and you're being the representation for a lot of people. What's funny, too, is that, you know, mind you, I started this with my crew in 1993, right out of high school. Mm-hmm. And we we were out there. We were, we were, you know, how they say everybody says now, we was outside. And so, outside. you know, we were the, everybody looked at us as these young, hungry guys going out there. And now it's funny, you fast forward and what most people know me by now is drink champs. And now I'm this dude with this white beard. <laughs> now I'm like this older dude. So it's funny because the, the tables have turned where I was, we were the young guys doing it you know, the new guys, the young guys, and now it's different, you know, but I love it. And I love it because I do feel that uh, ageism is a thing that needs to be tackled. A lot of my, a lot of my peers that are, you know, a lot of the guys that are out in the game right now are my same age and they're dying their beards or whatever. And <laughs> I actively decided I'm not going to dye my beard. Fuck it. I didn't know I was going to go full on white in the beginning, but I was cool with salt and pepper. And I was like, you know what, man, we got to age, man. We got to, we got to show the youth that it's okay to age. Like we're all going to age. There's no point in ageism when everybody's going to go through it if you're lucky. So, so that representation was important. Being Latino was important to me. Repping for all Latinos, you know what I'm saying? Like I really try to, you know, always include whether it be humorous or whatever, all Latinos out there. Cause I feel we all are one and we need to, we need to show solidarity and Latinos and black people from all backgrounds, like together, we need to show that solidarity in tough situations. And then um, being from Miami and being from the South, like that's a whole different dynamic that I always, you know, try to represent. So these, all these things I'm trying to like juggle to, to kind of bring to the forefront and represent those things. 
did did someone ever tell you like yo you, sh- you should probably you know dye that beard i mean i'm sure people told me like if anything my like my aunts and and my mom might have been like you know you're 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 doing show business you know you need to dye that beard i'm like nah you know like i just i'm i've always like again again I, it's, it's funny that we started with authenticity but one of the traits that i felt that hip-hop taught me the most was to 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 represent yourself in an authentic way and be be yourself don't try to be like the next person be creative and create your own lane and and that's what my thing was like i got to be comfortable with myself if i dye my beard then i'm putting on a mask you know and yeah sometimes it, it you know it might be awkward to someone but it ain't awkward to me it's me it's it's my skin as we wrap up what is the one thing that continues to inspire you to continue being your most authentic self man well now having children has has really inspired me to to be you know to continue to to be my most authentic self and and because i want to i want to pass that on to my kids and show them that you can do things in life you know sticking to your guns and being yourself and being yourself isn't always the best you know what i'm saying like that's the important thing that people need to understand like it's not the easiest road to just be yourself because people will pick at it and there's a lot of things people won't like about who you are and you just got to be able to withstand that and be confident about it but it's my kids man my kids and then at the end of the day man i love this culture i love the art i love the music and i might not love everything about it and there's definitely a lot of things i don't like about it i really am not a fan of industry you know even though i'm a fan of business and but I'm, a, I'm not a fan of industry the way it exploits art and so but i love when you know when when when, when a dope beat comes on or a dope mc or something just that reminds me yo this is why you know you fell in love with this is why you do that and it happens all the time me hand there that wraps up this week's episode of the kinduetas podcast if you enjoyed this episode please do us a favor leave us a rating and a review it just helps us in the algorithm to ensure that these stories get heard by as many people as possible scaling these stories and experiences is the only way that we're going to redefine professionalism thank you and see you next week